Hello, welcome to Check on the Dead, a podcast about what happens after a musician dies. From posthumous albums to creating a lasting legacy, we'll be talking about all aspects of what happens next. In every episode, I'll interview a special guest to bring their insights to this topic. This week, I'm interviewing Ace. Hi Ace, how are you doing? I'm good, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Excellent. Uh, Can I get you to introduce yourself and just say a little bit about what you do? Yeah, um, my name is Ace. I am a guitarist, songwriter from a band called Skunk and Nancy, which is a quite successful UK band, but also across the world and in Europe especially. We've been going 25 years. We've sold 6 million albums, physical copies, plus obviously all those kind of uh, streams on top of it. Um, Lots of world tours, played for Nelson Mandela, headline Glastonbury, Still going, still selling out tours at the moment. Uh, I think we're about eight albums in now. And uh, as I said, we've just celebrated our 25th anniversary last year with a huge tour. Now we are back in the songwriting kind kind of phase for the next album. That all sounds really exciting. <laughs> Congratulations. It's a very exciting life. Yeah, yeah, it is actually, yeah. Congratulations on 25 years. That's really cool. Yeah, you know what? It's it is it's amazing when you you don't really think about it, but when you actually get to that milestone, and all of a sudden you start printing up a t-shirt and going out on the road for it, then you then it has some gravity because people tell you it's important. Whereas you know when you're doing it, it just seems like anything. If I said to you what's happened in the last twenty five years, you just go, "Well, I've just lived, haven't I?" And it's the same as that. Yeah. But when you actually put like when you look at the, the the time span compared to a lot of other bands, especially from when the era that we started, they don't exist anymore. You know, but then you go, wow, 25 years is a long time. And then I spoke to Judas Priest the other day and they've been doing it 50 years. So I was a bit like, and they're still touring. So I'm still a baby. <laughs> You're definitely still a baby. You've got a long way to go. Got to catch up to do. <laughs> yes. Yeah, long way to the top if you want to rock and roll. Do you have a favourite deceased artist? I've got loads, actually. Um, and, and I'm always, always listening to deceased artists because obviously they're, they're usually the inspiration for most musicians, aren't they? And unfortunately, this business has a lot of dead artists, right? And they, they, they you know, burn bright, unfortunately die young. So if I was to say who am I listening to right now, I would say probably Gary Moore a lot because they've just released a posthumous album of him. I think it's at the Albert Hall or somewhere like that. It's actually, I think, the best album he made, right? And that, that's one of the ones that really into, I'm really into. I really like some of the classic players, like, for instance, I listen to Free quite a lot because I, I like the guitar playing of Paul Kossoff. I mean, he, he was one of the people, you know, way back died when he was about 27 or something like this. So Jimi Hendrix also, you know, Nirvana. When you, I mean, when you really look at it, it's really morbid, isn't it? You know, I'm listening to Amy Winehouse. It's, it's actually probably half of the people I listen to are actually dead. All positive, that is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> In Skunk and Nancy, do you know what you want your legacy to be as a band? Well, yeah, I mean, I think so. I think we want to be relevant right and still sound kind of relevant and fresh for a long time so for instance if you to make an album 25 years ago if you put it on there you don't want to say that sounds really dated like looking at an old fashion or something so when we create records we create them with that kind of a classic kind of longevity in them so you know really good songwriting structures really good instrument sounds really well recorded 
good producers to work on the arrangements with us, you know, good mixing, good master. Everything about it is, has got like the, the optimum quality for a longer life. And then the way that we, you know, we do our songs, you know, they, they have statements about what's going on now. So to represent what's going on now, but they're kind of statements that could last forever. So we've got songs from 25 years ago that are still relevant today. And you listen to it and you think, oh, someone wrote that last week because the lyrics are relevant to what's going on. So I think that's what it is. It's, it's creating classic stuff, timeless stuff that is also part of the moment, but to a really high quality that it, it will carry on sounding good. Right. Because we all know if someone says, oh, you've got to listen to that Stevie Wonder album, Songs in the Key of Life or something. You listen to it, the recording process of it and the production of it is still very, very good. Right. And that's why it stands up. Whereas you mention a demo band from the early 90s and, you know, their stuff just sounds almost unlistenable. Yeah, definitely. The better the quality, the more chance it is in the future. Like I have albums here that I have on cassettes and I don't play them because I don't have anything that owns the cassettes anymore. Yeah, and also you've got to think about stuff that dates really. You know, if I was to talk about bands like, I don't know, I don't know if they date that much, but Howard Jones and Thompson Twins and, you know, that 80s kind of movement, new romantic movement, some of it still sounds good, you know, some of the Duran Duran stuff, for instance, but some of it, yeah, some of it sounds really dated. And when you listen, oh, I don't want to listen to that anymore. And those old vinyls just go in the attic or in the secondhand store. Whereas, you know, your classic Led Zeppelin album always stays in your collection because it, it's it's of a time, but it's it hasn't it hasn't dated like a bad fashion. Yeah, 100%. In your experience, do musicians plan anything for what might happen after the like end of the career or end of the band? Well, you know, some do. The clever ones do. Right. And usually you can spot those ones in a band. Right. And uh, the older you get, it's easier to spot them. Uh, when you see bands, first of all, when they first start, they, most of them are, are quite wild and reckless. And musicians are renowned for making the wrong decision. Right. That, that is true. Right. It's like, hey, this sounds really crazy. Let's do it. You know, and you just go, that's mad. And yes, OK, we made it. We made a mistake. So because it's a creative nature to um, go for stuff that's exciting and uncharted. Right. You know, when they think about, you know, legacies, it's almost like thinking of a pension. People are like, wow, man, I'm not going to get there. Or when I get there, I'm going to be a multimillionaire. So I don't have to think about these things. So you will find that a lot of people, you know, they don't think about mortgages. They don't think about pensions and they don't think about future royalties and where things are going to go and where they're set up. They will just a lot of the time leave that to, you know, management or the record company and all these things. And uh, and the thing is, as we know in life, for anything to be successful, really, n no one loves your own baby as much as you do. So to look after your own interests is very, very important, right? But you do need the skills to navigate the business you're in, okay? So you will find that you'll have a band of four people and one of them may become, you know, very rich and sustained for a long time and the rest don't and they've all learned the same amount of money. It's, it's individual how someone works out their future finances you know so when it comes to royalties for instance if you're clever and you do the right deals and you do the you know the, the right percentages and cuts and recoupment and advances and stuff like this you can um, carry on earning more for a longer amount of time than other people right and also musicians are all different they, they're all offered different types of deals you can structure your own deal within a band so it means if you're clever and you have the foresight, 
you could structure a deal that in 25 years' time is still paying out well compared to I've had the money and spent it with the other person in the bandstand. And that all comes from good advice right at the beginning. And that's usually from a really good manager or someone in the business. Are you one of those people? Do you give everyone good advice? I do, because as you said, my other job is I'm the director of creative industry development at ACM. So that's got two and a half thousand students. It's got three campuses and I'm a director (laughs) there. So I think I've earned my place by knowing these kind of things. I mean, I'm part of the structure now and part of the strategy making team and things like that really involved in it. But, you know, a few years ago, I mean, I still I still do like personal tutorials every now and then. But a few years ago, I was really sitting down a lot with students and maybe doing, I don't know, 15, 20 tutorials a week talking about, um, you know, setting yourself up, portfolio careers, multiple income streams, royalties, all these type of things. Because I was like, you know, these guys know how to play an instrument. They know how to sing. They know how to play guitar. I'm not going to tell them how to do that. What I am going to tell them is the other side of value, which is you have your talent and you have your drive and your focus, but you need to navigate the industry um, at an earlier stage. Otherwise, you'll make a lot of mistakes. And I mean, to be honest, we hear it every day, don't we? We hear of people going bust every day. Wesley Snipes, no money. Hang on a minute. I've seen him in like so many blockbusters, you know, people in bands. Oh, they've gone bankrupt. So how did they go bankrupt? They were a multimillionaire. It's about managing yourself um, for your finances. Very important. It's not anybody in life, really. Yeah, you've got to to keep the money to keep playing as well. It's a very expensive industry, no matter what you're doing in it. Do you think it's important when playing cover songs, even of the deceased artists, that you keep the authenticity of the material or is it more appropriate just to play your own interpretation? Well, it depends where you're working, right? If you're in a function band, you have to play it like the original because that's what people are paying you for, right? They pay you money to come and dance, you know, basically, and have a good time and they want it to sound like the record. So you would play it that way. But if you were to do it for yourself, what's the point of doing something that's already done? It's like, you know, to reinterpret something is way more important, right? But when it comes to royalties, you're not going to see the royalties from that. They will go to the, you know, the artist or the posthumous artist, right? So if you're going to if you're going to do cover versions, what you need to do is register a PRS, isn't it? Because then you get paid a performance fee. So if you do a gig in a pub, you get like £12 or something like this, right? So even if it's not your own songs, you'll get a performance fee. But the good thing is the person who wrote the song will also get a little cut of that because you're playing their song in the pub. So it's all good for everyone when it comes to that type of thing, you know. Um, But my my thing is if you're going to cover a song, change it because otherwise people will always compare you to the original and always say, well, the original one's better, you know, in most cases. I'd say, I think I know one song, but I couldn't tell it off my top of my head. I thought the original was actually worse. <laughs> I'm never going to remember that now. <laughs> so what's your view on replacing artists after they have died? Do you mean replacing, what, in bands, you mean? Yeah, for like ACDC, when obviously when Bon Scott died and they got Brian Johnson. Yeah, well... You know, that is a great success story, isn't it, right? To replace a lead singer in a band is very difficult, right? Especially when ACDC are on that big curve of getting really successful at that point. They were just about to take off, weren't they, right? And then Bon Scott died and he had such a character and such a personality. Um, You know, and then you get these two camps, you know, the Bon camp, you know, the Brian camp, which one's which. You know, they do it with every kind of classic change of a band. But... Um, you know, they managed to come back because they wrote such a strong record. At the end of the day, it's all about the song, right? If you haven't got the music in the song, it's not going to go anywhere. And they made such a strong record with Brian Johnson singing on it that it just, it dropped for them. It really, really worked, right? And in that case, 
he, he was a great replacement. I'm sure when he first came out, he had people in the front row going, you're not Bond, you know, like they do with any band. I think it's if you're going to change someone in a band, you've got to come out with some material that's so, so uh, compelling and strong that fans are going to go, oh, all right, I'll give this a go. Okay, yeah, I like this. It's not trying to be so-and-so, but at the same time, you know, it's moving the music on within the band. So I, I think it's it's fine. And what, what we've got to remember is bands are made out of people and we all do love an original lineup, right? But also it's the same as life. It's like people have families, people come and go, people get divorced, but they're still a family. And that's, that's what a band is. It's a family. People come and go, but there's a common goal with the people involved in it to create something. So as long as that creation is good, I think changing members is absolutely fine. Uh, only when you get like someone who just owns the name and then just takes out on tour playing the same old songs as before and they don't sound quite as good and they've got a bunch of session musicians and, you know, that's when it gets a bit disappointing. People go, oh, I went to see this band and there's only one original member and it was rubbish, you know. That's the difference. Whereas you could look at some bands now who have literally one or two original members from over 40 years or something, but they're still good. So the, the content and the delivery has to be really good. So what about Queen when Freddie died? Many people say that Queen was Freddie and have replaced him with Adam Lambert. Well, you know, the thing is, right? I mean, I, I know Brian May as well. And the thing is, is um, with Queen, Adam Lambert is amazing. Right. He is amazing. I watched him on TV when he did that thing. I think it was in the clock in the New Year's Eve. And I was just like, oh, my Lord, this guy is fantastic. And what was fantastic was not just he was a big showman and he looked great. And he, he, he danced around well. He could hit the notes. Right. And the thing about Queen was Freddie was renowned as an awesome singer. And what was hard to match, apart from his personality and his stagecraft, was the fact that he could sing like that, right? And when Paul Rogers did it, it was good. It was good songs, you know. They were putting out their stuff and it was good songs. But when Adam Lambert did it, he actually could hit those notes, but he didn't mimic Freddie. So the talent of him married up with their amazing catalogue. I mean, look at that catalogue. It's off the scale, Queen. Right. And uh, so, you know, someone to be able to match the vocal range of Freddie Mercury and perform that catalogue, that's a big shoes to fill. But he did it, you know, and, and going on the subject like that. I mean, look at um, Journey. Journey took the guy from the Philippines, didn't they? Right. Uh, who they saw on YouTube. I saw them play live. The guy was phenomenal. You know, he was, you know, probably better than Joe Perry, you know, but he sounded like him and the energy was there. And everyone at the show was just like, oh, my God, awesome songs, great performance. The guy can sing. And so, you know, it can work. But if you're going to replace someone like with that kind of personality or massive voice, you've got to have big guns. You know, what I mean, you, you can't you can't half do it because then everyone will just go. That didn't work for me. Yeah, so it's almost got it's got to match the authenticity, but still have their own spin. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And what you've got to do is you've got to bring yourself back to when they started. Why did people like them when they were started? Because they had a great show, amazing songs, and, you know, they could perform well. And that's, that's you can't miss any of those aspects if you're going to recreate something. So many musicians of all genres suffer from mental health issues. Do you think enough is being done to help support them? Well, there's a few people, isn't there? I mean, even our drummer, Mark, he's got a, a charity called um, Music Support, right? And I know there's help musicians as well, yeah. right? I mean, the thing is, there, there is things that, is, I mean, obviously there could be more. There is 
things set up for musicians, but obviously I think a lot of musicians don't want to deal with it anyway and bring it to the, uh, you know, to bring it to the table. You know, a lot of the mental health issues, I suppose, it's, it's, a, it's a, a big subject to generalise, but, you know, you'll find a lot of mental health issues in, in musicians uh, maybe existed before they were famous and were kind of exacerbated by fame. Do you know what I mean? You know, so it, it amplified those things. Also, as a musician, there's a lot of um, downfalls. What, what can I say? Disappointments, um, rejection. There's a lot of that, you know, to, to get to a certain point. And then when you do get to that point, then you're judged, right? Like by the world and people everywhere. And it's, it's unnatural to have that amount of tension, rejection, love, no love, it's not unnatural and people aren't built for it right and and a lot of people can't deal with it because they're just normal people and their you know emotional muscle you know is not strong enough to deal with that type of thing so i mean that that can be part of the problem as well so to answer the question yes a lot can be done for it but also uh, you know we all know that sometimes a musician's kind of like surroundings aren't the best ones to help them out that because even the mildest band usually has drinks at the backstage and people hanging around in a party most nights and things like that so if you're trying to deal with those issues you know in addiction and things like that, it's very tough to get out of that scenario if you're touring. While doing my research I did find a graph I'll put it in the link to the description of this podcast if anyone wants to look at it but it was found that rock musicians actually have a higher suicide and accidental death rate than any other music genre. Oh my goodness, that's, that's why the insurance is high. By quite a lot as well. Do you have any reason why you think it's so connected to the rock music genre? I don't know. I mean, you know, there is the myth of rock, isn't it? That it's all kind of high power energy, crazy parties, drinking, drugs and all that. And it does go on, you know. You can't deny that doesn't go on in rock circles, right? And it's positively encouraged a lot. And, you know, rock culture, when you see things on films, they're all like, hey, man, and they're lighting up their joints and all this kind of stuff. On all the films you watch, Almost Famous and all this kind of stuff. And um, Monty Crew. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's encouraged and it's, it's glamorised, isn't it? Like, wow, that's crazy. It's amazing. And all that kind of thing. So it's easy to be pulled into that, isn't it? And especially when you're young. And as I said, musicians love to be excited. They need adoration as well, some of them, to kind of get them through the rejection processes. And also you, you, there's tiredness when you're touring and when you're uncertain. You need pickups. You don't see your friends or your girlfriends. There's emotional problems. It's a lot to deal with in the space of a tour bus and so a lot of people want the kind of release and you know people are coming out to celebrate they're coming to see you play your show they bought their ticket they want a party they want to hang out with you they want to drink things like that yeah I can see the lifestyle can become very addictive very quickly maybe it's like it in pop and stuff like that I've not really been in that world but you know I've, I've seen it it's a shame as well because I think obviously we're all the myth of the 27 club and Obviously, many musicians sadly do end up killing themselves or overdosing or things like that. Sometimes, like with um, Avicii, yeah, when he died, his family set up the the Tim Burling Foundation and Scott Hutchins, Hutchinson from Frightened Rabbit. He recently killed himself and their family set up a, another charity called Tiny Changes. Uh, so how do you think these charities that are being set up around mental health after these artists have killed themselves, like help their legacy or build it? I'm not sure if it helps their 
musical legacy. I don't think people will listen to their music anymore, right, because of, uh, because of the charities. But what I think it does is it gives them a platform that the person was known to be able to make people sit up and listen, uh, maybe, or th even just think about it. You know, uh, it's like somebody dies who's famous, and everyone kind of goes, oh, my God, and they all know about it. And then from that, someone can say, we like Amy Winehouse, you know, we're starting a charity now. So that death of that person has alerted a whole public to something that exists. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean their music is going to be bigger. Sometimes it is, obviously, you know. But it, what it does do is, it, it, is their fame is a good catalyst for charities to start and help to change people's minds. Do you think how an artist dies can alter their legacy? I suppose so. I suppose so. I suppose there's, a, you know, that burnout with glory type of thing, isn't there? You know, is appealing to some sectors. But I suppose all, it's, all artists, right, when they... It's tragic, isn't it, when any of them die? So I think it's about the same, really. If it was a car crash to, a, you know, an overdose, you would still go, oh, man, what a waste, wouldn't you? With artists like John Lennon, when he got assassinated... I think that definitely shaped the whole Beatles legacy. Yeah, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm not sure really. I remember when that happened with John Lennon. And at the time, the Beatles, they were around, but it wasn't like, they, 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 to me, they didn't seem as big as they are now then. They'd kind of like been through a phase and they were kind of like, you know, they weren't as monstrous legacy as they are now. So when John Lennon got shot, it was really weird, right? But what it did alert you to is the fact that nobody is safe. You think there's this really famous guy who's done all this cool stuff, you know, and he's just recorded his album, and then someone shoots him. A bit like Dimebag Daryl, you know, he's on stage. Someone shoots him. It's like almost like you feel like you, you're not, um, th that no one is immune to anything because rock stars and stuff seem to have this weird kind of immunity to the world, don't they? So I think John Lennon was probably, I can't think of any other person before him that was assassinated such a peacemaking person as well do you know what I mean yeah some musicians are I think personally are more popular and like more significant now than they were when they were alive examples could be like well Joy Division yeah. being Curtis Nick Drake yeah Nick Drake the, um, Jeff Buckley he's a classic yeah, I mean, Jeff Buckley, is, it was quite successful when he died, right? So, But Nick Drake, he wasn't successful when he died. He'd only sold 15,000 albums. He wasn't, he, you know, he did a few shows. He was not a big star. And he got rediscovered at a later stage. And now he's huge. And he's like, you know, loads of people quote him. I even gave Nick Drake's album to um, Till from Ramstein. I gave it to Henry Rollins when I was on tour with him. Um, I gave it to a whole bunch of people. I think I gave it to Lemmy as well, actually. I was friends with Lemmy for years. But I always used to go, you've got to check this record out. It's amazing. And it was like before he was really on, on the scale. But, you know, he, his thing now is he's, you know, massive artist, Nick Drake, you know, selling. But he'd only sold 15,000 albums when he was alive and really wasn't famous. So it's really weird how it works, isn't it, really? I, I, I can't really say much more than that. Yeah, neither can I. It's just one of those things. That I think people obviously comes in and out of phases and popularity, but... You really never know. Yeah. And there's also a kind of a past glory of people that have obviously passed away, right, in some tragic circumstances um, for people that weren't there at the time, you know, because then you just see the good bits, don't you? You just see, like, them, these amazing performances and when they were on stage and they were absolutely brilliant and, you know, and you, you never went through the period when it all went wrong for them. So there's a, a post 
kind of post glory, I suppose, isn't there? When people who are say, you know, eighteen now look look at Kurt Cobain and, and Nirvana and stuff like that. Another great example. I don't know. If, uh, do you remember Viola Beach? In twenty sixteen, they had the car crash where him and all their manager died. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I do remember actually. On the bridge. Yeah, on the bridge. And then That's only released right. two singles. And then after their death, Coldplay did a tribute at Glastonbury and their album became number one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, you know, that's just uh, unfortunate, you know, press alerts the public to the music of a band, isn't it? Where they didn't have the exposure before. And obviously that kind of exposure all of a sudden alerts the music. And if the music's good, everyone starts buying it and listening to it, isn't it? Such a small band doesn't even start. And now I think most people know who they are and they've got such a big legacy. But when they were alive, people had no idea who they were. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. I mean, the thing is, right, when it comes to legacies, if you're talking like uh, future royalties and all these type of things, you know, if you're, if you're clever and you publish all your songs with a good publisher, with a good deal, and you paid off all your advances and all that kind of stuff, they're old songs, you can assign those songs to someone else after you die, right? So those royalties will go to someone else. So, for instance, all my songs at the moment are all published by Chrysalis. Right, I've got a couple on PRS on their own, but there's, you know, there's just they're not worth anything really. They're just solo things. So all the big skunk stuff is all published by Chrysalis or Cobalt, BMG, this kind of thing. So they're reputable companies. They will be going for a long time, right? So in my lifetime, as long as those records get played, you know, they will collect those royalties and I will get them. But when I die, if I don't assign them or I don't do anything, you know, all your will, everything just goes to who's next to you if you don't do anything, right? But what I can do is I can assign those royalties to be paid for a certain amount of time to anybody I want. So I could say, for instance, oh, I'm going to assign them to my children. And at some point in their life, you know, when everything's this and that and, and I go, those royalties will just carry on going to them. Right. Which is, I think, a really good thing, isn't it? You know, because it doesn't matter. You might die when you're really old, but then your children might be old, but then they could give it to their children or something like this. You know, if you do think ahead. I mean, I haven't done that yet. I feel way too young and healthy. But, um, you know, with the COVID-19 thing, right, I got a letter through the door saying, time is running out. And I turned it over and it said, make your will today. <laughs> so maybe I should start looking before I go shopping in Sainsbury's next, start looking at assigning my royalties. Oh, that's, good. that's good advertising, that is. With Amy Winehouse and things like that, they've had lots of posthumous releases. With Skunk Nancy's music, would you still want maybe like demos or whatever to be released? Well, we've kept tight control on, on quality. So we do have demos and we've got B-sides and all this type of thing. But we've never re-released any B-sides because they were done quite fast and demos never get out there. So, you know, good quality stuff, remixes. Everything we've done of quality has been released. Even though you go across different record companies, one thing you can do is have the same publisher. So if you stick with the same publisher and it's a good one, right, you can swap record companies and all the sort. They can't take your royalties. No one can do it. You, you, and, and the good thing about royalties, they go straight into your account, you know, and then you pay your management or whatever from part of it. So you don't have to wait for record companies to collect them um, and you don't have to wait for record companies to pay them back for you. And, you know, no, record companies are notorious for not paying people anyway, right? So And publishers do. It just goes straight in your account. So you don't have any problem with that. You know, with with Skunk, I said we only let out really good releases, and um, you know I own you know ninety percent of my publishing, which is brilliant. Oh, that is good. Why do you think fans want these continued content after the death of an artist? 
Well, there's two two things, right? I mean, one is there's always a new generation of people, right? Rock music is a great example, right? Kids of 12 will be listening to stuff from 30, 40, 50 years ago, Black Sabbath, right? It has such a long shelf life. So re-releasing Black Sabbath and remastering it just means it's bringing it up to date sonically with what kids are listening to now. Because if you listen to a 1967 Black Sabbath album, the original one, it's not going to sound great compared to what you're listening on your iPhone, right? So they'll remaster it by a good guy, and then you put it on, you go, this is great. So young kids are always discovering rock music. I mean, I'm talking about Free. Free is 50 years old, that album I was listening to with Paul Kossoff. And I can't even, it doesn't sound that old. You know, that you've got such a long shelf life, right? So, so remastering and repackaging is good for that. But also, uh, there's two other things. One is the, the media has changed that records are on. So people will buy it on vinyl. They'll buy it on CD and then they'll take it as a download because that's the way they're consuming it. I mean, I'm listening to everything off iTunes now. Everything. So I'm listening to all my old records off iTunes. They sound great, right? They've remastered them for iTunes. And I've got them on vinyl. I've got them on CD. But I haven't got my vinyl player set up and I've only got CDs in my car. So there's different ways of consuming it. But there's also rock people, as I said, a great example, a very, um, they've got a great allegiance to bands if they really like them. So when they release something old or, you know, some back catalogue stuff or a reissue master or something, they, they're they like collectors. They're like, oh, fantastic. You know, I mean, if, if Led Zeppelin came out with some special set now, I don't know, did something really amazing, I'd go and buy it. You know, I'd be like, I've got to have that because I love Led Zeppelin. So there's this allegiance. There's this, this um, you know, commitment of rock people. Pop's not so much because, you know, kids grow, they change and, you know, their tastes change. But I, I, I do think re-releasing and repackaging is not a bad thing because we're not forcing anyone to buy it. It just means there's another product available. I mean, a great example, I've got a re-release of Motorhead, right? And it's called 1979. And it's, it's the original, I think, uh, first two, three albums, two albums, right, that they made, the original lineup, which was the best one, in, in my opinion. And they packaged it with old pictures and books and all this stuff and the singles in the covers. And it's on heavy vinyl and they've remastered it. And it's like such a great box set. I mean, that's 1979. How old is that? Right. But I love it. I've got, I've got it. And, and it's because I love Motorhead. I've loved them for years and years. So, you know, there's there's always an appeal in, in repackaged material, I think. Yeah, almost like proving your dedication. Yeah, 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 I know. What else are we going to spend our money on? <laughs> yeah, literally. <laughs> I don't think I have any other questions. Is there anything you want to add to this discussion? So branding is, is a really big issue for people after they've died. So if you were to look at some people, like obviously Kiss is a great example of branding, right? Kiss are all still alive, but they're, they've, they've, they've merchandised themselves from the beginning. They're really good. But for instance, look at um, well, look at Motorhead, right? Look at Motorhead now. There's Motorhead beer, Motorhead whiskey and vodka, right? There's the re-releases. There's all the original releases. There's what did I get the other day? I got a, a corkscrew opener. Um, yeah, there, there's uh, there's even um, sex toys, Motorhead vibrators. Yeah, right. There's um, there's the, the branding of that band post Lemmy is actually a really um, big uh, marketing machine because the, the, the logo they used was so strong. And when you look at the original Motorhead logo, it's a classic T-shirt seller, 
right? I've seen it cleared in all different ways by other companies, right? And I've seen it like tattooed on hundreds of people. And now I'm seeing it like everywhere on products. I mean, in my house, right? If I look around, I have got a motorhead um, beer mat, right? Road Crew one. And I've got a sweatshirt from Road Crew. I've got the beer. I've got the, the lager. I've got the new box set. I've got a, a belt buckle, an old one on the side here. I've got a can opener, which they gave me the other day. I mean, I'm made of all that lot anyway. You know, I've got all these different bits and obviously T-shirts and all this stuff. But it all looks so cool. It symbolizes the music. You're not listening to the music. But if you've got something really cool, you know, you can keep on, you know, rolling that out and, and making money out of it for a long time after an artist has died, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. Thank you so much yeah, for talking with me. I think your answer has actually been really interesting. As a musician, you've got like a really good... Yeah, 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 yeah. I just got just got to go and sign my licensing over, haven't I? Now to sign over my <laughs> sign over my rights before co before I go shopping. <laughs> All right then, brilliant. Well, look, have a great evening. Yeah, and uh, drop me a line anytime. Yeah. Thank you so much. Okay. Bye. See you later. Bye. Thank you all for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, give us a like and subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on. This has been Check on the Dead. See you next time. Bye.